Hello everyone, this is Rav David from Yeshiva Oraita. Today the Yeshiva is beginning its annual scholarship campaign. If you benefited from Tzarachim podcast or any other aspect of the Yeshiva's educational vision, consider the possibility of joining with us, partnering, donating any amount of money to ensure that no student is ever turned away due to lack of monetary means. The link to donating is in the bio, and thank you so much for your consideration. Welcome to Tzarech Ian, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tzarech Iyun podcast. My name is David Silverstein from Yeshivat Oraita, and today I have the honor of being joined by my friend and my neighbor from Odin, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody. Rabbi Brody, thank you so much for coming on the Tzarech Iyun podcast. David, it's great to be together. So I know that you're involved in a lot of exciting projects, both personally and professionally, and most recently, you became the executive director of a very new and exciting initiative in the world of medical ethics, and that is the, uh, the AMATI um, organization. So maybe before we get to the topic at hand, just maybe spend a few minutes talking about sort of what is AMATI, what are you guys trying to accomplish, what are you, try, what are you guys working on? I think that would be a good entry point in terms of getting the audience to sort of get a sense of you know, where you're coming from, you know, what your background is. Sure. Uh, Amitai is dedicated to helping Jews navigate their healthcare journey with Jewish wisdom, uh, with halacha, with Jewish ethics. And we're particularly focused on uh, issues relating to aging, end-of-life care, and organ donation. These are super sensitive issues. Uh, Baruch Hashem, medicine allows us today to live much longer, many times live longer well and healthily. Uh, But on other occasions, people can uh, go through the process of aging or their healthcare journey with a lot of ups and many downs where the quality of life is certainly compromised. And you know, there are a lot of questions that are being raised uh, on a lot of different levels, on the individual level, of course, in terms of what types of treatments people should get or not get, and whether there are times they can forego treatments or even some occasionally withdraw treatments. And on a broader level, on a public policy level, we have to deal with a lot of questions because medical care happens in a certain cultural context. And so what's going on in the West is certainly going to impact what type of medical options we have. And Amatai is dedicated to helping Jews uh, think through these issues on a, on a very serious level, both in terms of giving real-time guidance and consultation with our hotline, but also helping people plan ahead a bit and creating some sort of education initiatives as well so people can be more informed about the decisions they're going to have to make. I mean, it's such an important uh, initiative. I remember when my grandmother uh, wasn't well in the hospital. Um, so we had all types of issues related to the questions of brain death. Uh, she had a serious neurological situation. And I remember at the time, like Amatai at that point, what wasn't around. 
And thankfully, I was in contact with a very close friend of both of ours, uh, Rabbi Jason Weiner, who had given both me and my dad a lot of guidance in the world of medical halacha. But you know, having a, something like Amatai accessible you know, is really an amazing resource to both individuals and to institutions to be able to know that there really is a set of experts out there who are sensitive and knowledgeable about obviously these you know, super critical questions. Um, I think actually that's a good segue into the topic that I want to talk about today. Um, obviously, a few weeks ago in Israel, there was the really tragic murder of uh, Lucy D, as well as her two daughters. And um, subsequent uh, to, uh, to the murder, um, the family decided to dedicate um, Lucy D's uh, organs. And I think five people were saved uh, by virtue of the organ donation. And there was an extraordinary video, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Amatai actually put out a piece about this, um, a video going around last week of the daughter of Lucy D, her daughters, uh, listening to a woman uh, who actually has the heart of Lucy D currently in, in her body. And they were able to listen uh, to their mother's beating heart. Obviously, it's a tragic story, extremely emotional, and just the optics of seeing that is something which really you know, is in intensely overwhelming. Um, but I remember sort of growing up in, in the U.S. and spending significant time like in the YU circles, right? Um, it, it did seem all there that um, there, there was more of, uh, let's say, um, th there was more discussion in, in that context about the halachic permissibility of organ donation, right? I think in Israel it's much more of a consensus issue, which we'll talk about a little later. But if you could just map out sort of on the American scene, right? In other words, what are the various options for people uh, thinking halachically about the question of brain death and whether or not brain death would be considered uh, halachic death, and obviously, what are the implications, for example, for organ donation? Yeah, no, I appreciate the the question. I mean, Lucy D's example is amazing. Uh, we should know, by the way, she's not the only terror victim whose organs were donated recently. I mean, Or Eshgar, sort of known as the Iron Man, um, he was murdered also in terrorist attack, and I think his family donated five organs there as well, and families of Yagel and Halal Yaniv, the brothers, and Eitam Magini, uh, they donated corneas there, um, also terror victims. And some of the famous examples, whether it's Elisa Fledo, Zichonalabracha, 20 years ago, Yoni Jesner, were also in those circumstances as well. Uh, and it's been a tremendous, you know, a tremendous, um, I think, Kiddush Hashem and inspiring in many ways how people were able to find the strength to donate in the context of a very, obviously, emotionally difficult situation. Uh, you're right, Rav David. I mean, the issue of organ donation is a contentious one. And I sort of map it out this way. Um, the real issue, well, let's just clarify here. I mean, the real issue, people, Judaism supports organ donation, and people agree with that. The real question is whether or not we accept brainstem death, the respiratory brain death, as a halachic criterion for death. In the religious Zionist world in Israel, um, that's the only consensus issue amongst controversial halachic issues, which all religious Zionist posts can agree upon, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, starting with Ravam Shapiro and Mordechai Eliyahu and Shal Yisraeli and the original decision of the Rabbinu Rashid in 1986, and, and, and well beyond it. I mean, today it's really an issue which is across the board, whatever flavor of religious Zionism you follow, the poskim there support brainstem death and therefore consider organ donation to be a mitzvah. In practice, in the Haredi world in Israel, they do not accept respiratory brain death as a halacha criterion for death, which more or less um, removes the possibility of organ donation of major organs. It's still a possibility to donate cornea, for example, 
after cardiac death, but uh, by and large, in the Haredi world, you won't find organ donation. And in the diaspora, in Chutzlaretz, uh, it became a very contentious fight with a lot of different positions sort of struggling on that issue. Whether it's in the United States, we've seen some senior Russia yeshiva with very strong feelings in both directions. Or in England, they had a lot of um, disputes over it as well. Uh, and so we really find ourselves in an interesting situation where, on the one hand, you have one extreme which says, this person is alive. You absolutely cannot take an organ from them. That's even quasi, if you will, Ritzicha murder, or at least we're a Suffolk about it, we can't do it. To the other extreme, which is taken by religious Zionist post here in Israel, which says it's a great mitzvah. In fact, Rav Ratzon Arusi, a chief rabbi of Kiryat Ono, goes so far to say is that in halachic state, we would just tell people, whether you agree to it or not, uh, these organs must be donated. And once we retrieve the organs, we'll return the body to the family for burial. So there's really a polar uh, positions on this issue, uh, which has made it very uh, contentious. Um, I find it very inspiring, actually, in some ways, that some Batedin around the world have even taken the approach of saying, we're not going to decide this issue. And therefore, what we're going to do is tell people you have positions to rely upon in both ways. So the Besden in Sydney and the Besden in Johannesburg, in practice, the chief rabbi of the UK and other places have said, if you choose to accept this criterion for death, uh, we will allow and support um, your decision to donate the organs. Well, it's actually really fascinating just in terms of that framing, because in other words, what you're basically describing is, is that, you know, among Haredi rabbis, for the most part, obviously, it's complicated. You know, Rabbi Ratzon Arusi is not exactly like a card-carrying, like B'nai Akiva member, right? So in other words, he's sort of like a unique individual. But nonetheless, I think generally speaking, it's a fair assessment to say that among Haredi rabbis, both in Israel and in diaspora, there's a sense that, you know, brainstem death is not an acceptable criteria to use. Whereas if you sort of try and map out the same model of overseas versus in Israel, right, it's actually an amazing thing to think about that in the U.S. it's a contentious issue, right? And you'll have some YU rabbis or some religious Zionist rabbis in the U.S. very much endorsing the view of, let's say, Rabbi Tendler and you know other Gadaido Schwartz. You know they're no longer alive anymore, but still there are sort of models for, let's say, religious Zionists or non-Orthodox halacha in the U.S. Um, and even in England, I'm sure that uh, you will have some rabbis, you know, associated with uh, non-Orthodoxy or Zionism, or at least more open to it. Whereas, you know, when you get to Israel, right, all of a sudden it's a consensus issue in the opposite direction, right? As opposed to being a consensus issue among Haredim that you can't have brainstem death as a criteria. Uh, in Israel, it becomes a consensus issue among religious Zionist rabbis that brainstem death is the only sort of viable halachic option. And I don't think people are, oftentimes are sensitive to the fact that there's an enormous amount of diversity among religious Zionist rabbis, right? In other words, it's not as if every rabbi who wears a kippah surah has the exact same halachic orientation, yes. right? So when you're talking about, let's say, Rav Ram Shapira, Rav Morich Eliyahu, you know, Rav Reim Cohen, Rav Yuval Sherlow, Rav David Stav, right? Uh, Rav Michal Levi, right? These names may not mean that much to the average listener, but these are people representing very different worldviews within the context of religious Zionism, both in terms of issues of ideology and also in terms of issues of psaq halacha. So what do you think is sort of motivating this type of consensus? Meaning it could just be coincidence, right? But it seems to be strange a little bit to assume that you know, there's nothing going on here in terms of thinking about halacha entering a reality Right, whereby it's no longer localized halacha, as in my community, my shul, let's say, I don't know, the local Beit Din. It's about state-centered halacha. Right? So do you think, for example, that the fact that there is such a consensus 
is indicative about some type of larger vision of, let's say, religious Zionist halakha, specifically on a state level? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this didn't have to be this way because there are certainly figures that are widely accepted in the Haredi world, like Ramosha Feinstein-Zasal, Ravadi Yosef, Shlomo Zaman Orbach, who many people feel actually accept a brainstem death. Uh, but in practice, the Haredi world has not accepted that interpretation of their positions. And uh, it's tragic in some ways that it turned out to, to go to, to be divided along these lines. It didn't have to be. Um, you see that also some bridge figures like Rav Shlomo Amar or Rav Yisrael Meir Lau or David Lau or Zaman Nechemi Goldberg, all of whom accepted brainstem death, but, you know, sort of border the lines between the religious science and the Haredi world. And so I, I think you're right that there is something somehow about this issue. And I, I point to three factors in general. One is that this is really when the Rabbanut Rashid accepted respiratory brain death as a lachic criteria for death was the late, last great decision made by the Rabbanut Rashid when it was controlled by religious Zionist poskim. Right, their chief rabbis were Ram Shapiro, Mordechai Eliyahu, Rabshal Yisraeli, had tremendous amount of influence then, and others. Um, and I think that's had a big impact on their Talmudim and the subsequent generation of, of religious Zionist poskim. I think that the, the second factor, which is a complicated one, is a little more complex, but you know, this whole issue about when to define death. So at the very least, someone who's brainstem death is on the verge of death, what we call it halacha goses. And there's an interesting question, could a goses sacrifice themselves in order to save the lives of other people? Right? Could you jump on a grenade to save, to kill yourself, but save the lives of other people? Think of Rui Klein and others. And I think in the religious Zionist world, there's a little bit of a sentiment which is more inclined to say that we would, we believe in people giving to others to save many lives. And it's a complicated argument, but I think that that's part of the situation here. But I think the third factor is probably the biggest one, which is relating to what it means to have a state. I mean, let's think of the consequences. If Israel doesn't accept respiratory brain death, that means that organ donation isn't going to happen in this country, which means that many people are going to die every year just like they do in Japan, where for various cultural and religious reasons, they have very little organ donation. And I think that for the religious Zionist rabbinate, they couldn't accept the idea of saying there's a suffix here. We're not sure. They felt, and you see this in the original Rabbanuta Rashid declaration, we have to, you know, Yikovetahar here. We have to make a declaration here, make a decision. And that decision is what has allowed hundreds of people every year to have their lives saved through the miracle of organ donation. So I think you put those three factors together and it's made an interesting combination to push the religious Zionist camp in Israel, at least in that direction. It's interesting because even some of the bridge figures you mentioned, for example, of Zalman Chemi Goldberg, uh, Rabbi David Lau, his father of Israel Meir Lau, uh, Ravad Yosef, uh, these were all figures, even though they were sort of culturally very much in the Haredi world, these were all personalities who did have some uh, sort of state level Function, role in terms of either rabbinic courts or in terms of the chief rabbinate, right? So in other words, even though they're not like formally religious Zionist personalities in terms of let's say being connected to less a messianic worldview of Rav Cook or some type of like, you know, non-messianic Zionism or Rav Soloveitchik, they still are not just localized rabbis dealing with just their community, right? They do have a responsibility to a broader audience. And, you know, I wonder sometimes if that also sort of may, may play a role. It's actually interesting. I was reading over Shabbos that uh, Aviada Kohen wrote an article in uh, the Orthodox Forum about religious Zionist halacha in general. And he makes a lot of claims about religious Zionist halacha. 
But one of the claims he makes is that uh, religious Zionist halacha, for the most part, um, is oftentimes more open to sort of uh, what he calls meta-halachic considerations, right? Think about like sort of legal formalism here. In other words, just reading Gemaras, interpreting Gemaras, and trying to get a sense of what the halacha says. But oftentimes there are larger concerns that are articulated internally within the system, but oftentimes don't get, let's say, as much uh, press in the context of formal chuvo. Can you think of any examples where poskim are actually open and articulate about the need to sort of think uh, in a sort of meta-halachic way about some sort of larger variables that really are at play here? I mean, just to give you one example of this. I mean, let's say, for example, you know, Israel were to um, not allow for organ donation, right? So I assume that would also be consequential in terms of the fact that presumably they would be taking organs, right? They'd be getting organs from some other place, right? So imagine a world where Israel is receiving organs from other countries, right? But not giving organs, right, to anybody else. So that also the optics of that, you know, would be quite difficult. Well, we don't have to imagine that. In the 80s, Israel was in the broader European organ transplant network, and they got kicked out. Israel got kicked out of the network because uh, we were deemed as taking too many organs but not giving enough. So that's a real like consequence uh, of the policy and part of the pressure that happened at the time. And um, no one's going to be giving organs to the state of Israel if the state of Israel isn't, you know, we have some deals like that now, some countries in Europe, but um, but no one's going to give if they're not going to also receive from us as well. And, you know, you're raising a much broader question about what makes someone a Zionist posek, because, you know, you're right, the figures you mentioned, like the former chief rabbis, of Avadia and of Mayor Lau, and even figures who didn't have a state position, but were broad thinkers, like Roshama Zaman Orbach or Zaman Nechemia Goldberg. I mean, these are poskim who really have broad visions of what halacha might look like in the context of a broader society, not just in you know the shtetl or in a small Jewish community. And I, I think more than anything, that's what makes someone into a Zionist posek. It's not if they um, wear a kipasuga or say halal and yom atzmot. I mean, these are sort of minor issues compared to broader issues of how do you deal with halachic challenges and opportunities, but also dilemmas um, when it comes to running a state. And these are major, massive issues that we have to think about, which we didn't have to think about for many hundred years. And so, you know, the broader question is, are you willing to think in those terms of saying the application of halacha is different in the state context. I think the classic example of this, and the way I test this in some ways is, is there a way of asking a shayla that would be the same exact shayla, but would be get a different answer in Chutzlaret than does in Israel? And I think the classic case about this, which I like to discuss a lot, is a question of donating your body for medical study to a medical school. We all know Chutzlaret, the default, and I certainly agree with this, is that People should not donate their bodies to medical schools to allow medical students to study the anatomy. But if the state of Israel had that policy, well, how do you have a medical school in this country? And this was a massive debate already before the state was founded. And in the 1920s, it was a big debate. It took 22 years until the first medical schools opened, in part because of this issue. And you see some very fascinating chuva, particularly from Agorin and from the Swedish Asia, Yaakov Weinberg where they say that the whole question of halacha and its application, particularly regards to pikuach nefesh, change in the context of a state. 
And so I, I think that's really where there's a very profound question, which is, is the POSIC now taking into consideration the needs of a state in different ways and therefore answers it in different ways than he would in Chutzlaritz because of the context in which he's being asked the question. Well, you mentioned the example of autopsies. Um, is, is that currently also a consensus position among people associated with this sort of like halachic orientation? Meaning is organ donation sort of an outlier in the sense that for some reason that became a consensus, but is there still internal opposition uh, within um, the halachic community, both Haredi and religious scientists towards giving a heter for autopsies? Uh, yes, there is. No, this is not a contention. There was never a consensus issue. There was always contention about it. And, and part of the issue here was that uh, even, you know, the question became is, should doctors, for example, be allowed to study on it? So you're having a question of dati or religious figures have to wonder, like, can I accept an or a body to do an anatomical study on, which was donated, you know, against halacha, according to some positions? And that was part of the question. Today, I don't think people are encouraging it, in part also because there are plenty of people who aren't asking Shilas, who are not religious, uh, who are you know, more than happy to donate their organs for anatomical study or research. And there's no shortage, therefore. And therefore, it's not as acute of a question today. Um, and, and so you know, there's less pressure on it. When it comes to organ donation, every organ that's donated or not donated is a matter of life and death. I mean, every year, about 70, 80 people in the state of Israel alone die waiting on the organ transplant list. So anytime someone says no or yes, this is a matter of life and death. This is mamish bikoach nefesh, right? Sakanot nefashot lefanene, right? There's an acute case here of a life-saving question. And I think in that sense, all medical research is different, which is why it's less in the headlines today. But the paradigm that was created by that question in the 20s and 30s when we had to ask, can the state of Israel open medical schools, uh, is still relevant today for, for this question and for other questions as well. What about sort of a, a question I know comes up a lot in the context of people thinking about the medical profession in the U.S., and that is the question of, let's say, issues of Shmir Shabbos and being a resident. I know that I remember when I was you know, learning from YU and talking to friends of mine who were going to the medical uh, profession, and so this became, like, again, a contentious issue, right? Is there a requirement to specifically look for a Shomer Shabbos residency, right? Obviously, in a certain sense, it's easier in a diaspora context because you could swap uh, with, you know, colleagues of yours who are not Jewish, right? But I imagine in an Israeli context where, you know, if you go to a hospital, right, and you're on call, right, so it's, in, obviously there could be Arab doctors, and obviously that may sort of um, mitigate some of the halachic concerns, but oftentimes it means, you know, swapping with a friend who's, who's also uh, Jewish, and I can imagine that there may be some sort of parallels here where, you know, Polsky may start to think to themselves, well, wait a second, you know, what are the implications for sort of state-run halacha, right, for, uh, you know, observant Jews, and this may be sort of a moderately different type of question when given the various calculations and the same question being asked in New York. So is, is that another area where at least implicitly or maybe explicitly there's a dialogue about, you know, thinking about, you know, a more macro medical system and how that would impact sort of halakhic discourse? Well, a, a little bit, but the issue is a little more complex. I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages, both for medical students and for residents in each country. Uh, uh, on the one hand, Israel, because it's so sensitive to the needs of religious people, so it, it has ways of setting up accommodations in different ways uh, for its religious you know, doctors and other healthcare professionals. Um, the dispute in the States was over, like, do people have to, like, seek out particularly 
you know, medical schools or, or other forms of uh, setups of a Shoma Shabbos residency, with the question sort of becoming, you don't have to be a doctor, right? You don't need to be a doctor. So is there an element here of pikuach nefesh when you can choose not to be in this position? And that's at least part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess you could say a little bit it's related because obviously we have to have accommodations to allow people to be doctors 24-7 in Israel. And in that respect, there's a bit more pressure. But you could also argue, as I think many feel, that in Chutzlarts as well, there's a lot of prime, you know, importance to having Jewish doctors. And therefore, you know, we come up with different solutions in different scenarios. I remember that um, there was an article that was published, I don't know how recently, uh, by Rabbi Judah Goldberg, uh, talking about end-of-life related issues and specifically questions of end-of-life care. Maybe we could transition for a few minutes, moving away from the question of organization specifically, and talk more broadly about uh, end-of-life care, uh, just to give some personal sort of anecdotal uh, context here. I remember I mentioned at the beginning when my grandmother uh, was very ill, so uh, there were all these questions that came up with regard to brain death and different issues, and then one of the questions that came up was the question of sort of like issues of like quality of life, and then questions of like sheva al-ta'aseh, about being passive in terms of you know, interventionist treatments versus, you know, sort of being active, et cetera, et cetera. So I know that you've been working um, with various postkim in the U.S. talking about end-of-life um, literature and material. And I know that oftentimes some of the um, halachic positions coming out of uh, certain yeshivas in, y in YU really are sort of hypersensitive, this question of quality of life and the question of whether or not, you know, passive a removal of care uh, would be halakhically acceptable. So maybe you could speak for a few minutes about sort of that specific issue. And I'm curious, as a follow-up, if there are parallels there in Israel as well. Is that sort of an inverse situation where maybe, you know, in America, you know, maybe date, brain death is more contentious, uh, but in Israel it's more of a consensus, whereas maybe, you know, the issue of end-of-life care in, in Israel actually may be uh, more complicated, whereas in America it seems to be more of a sensitivity to questions of quality of life. Uh, it's interesting. Um... Rabbi Goldberg, Rabbi Dr. Goldberg's article, which had an addendum uh, signed by Rav Schechter and Rav Willig, Rav Schechter of Mordechai Willig, it's a very, very important article. Um, I speak to Rav Schechter and Willig regularly now, but I'm a Thai work, and Rabbi Goldberg's a member of our rabbinic advisory board. And it's a very important article, which raises a lot of questions, not so much about withdrawing care, but withholding or foregoing treatment. And these are crucial questions that we have to think about ahead of time, uh, because, um, you know, like you said, you can have acute crisis questions like you have in the case in your own personal family, many people do, but there are many times when we can foresee where a person's healthcare journey is headed, whether it's certain types of degenerative diseases or terminal illnesses, cancers and whatnot, or cases of like advanced dementia, things along those lines, where we sort of can see ahead of time where the healthcare journey is gonna take the person, and what Rav Schechter of Willig have really been promoting is people understanding that there might be occasions in which a person can choose to forego treatment when it's going to be a, a bridge to nowhere. And I, I'd say that it's interesting that you asked about this, the context with Israeli comparison. There is certainly sensitivity to these questions in Israel. I think it was Amna Chemi Goldberg actually was particularly sensitive to it. Uh, but his father, Shlomo Zaman, was also as well. Uh, but there is a little bit of a difference here in terms of approaches. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't know, though, if I'd attribute this to the context of being in Israel versus Chutzlar. It's here. I mean, it's an interesting case where I'm not sure it's the state factor 
that's driving the differences here. I think there's just a different outlook on, on those issues. Um, and, and, you know, and within America, certainly, um, Moshe Feinstein and Rabbi Tendler are very sensitive to questions of pain and suffering and quality of life. Uh, those are terms which sometimes you find in many, but not all, Zionist or even general religious circles in Israel, they don't like using the term quality of life for various reasons, but they do recognize the concept of Yisuin or suffering. Uh, but, you know, these are hugely important questions, and I do think that uh, we need to think long and hard about where we're going with thinking about this powerful technology and end-of-life care. I mean, Israel, it's very interesting. The most Jewish law, the most halachic law in the state of Israel is the law that governs end-of-life care, Chokonotelamut, uh, which was written more or less by Professor Avram Steinberg after a committee of 59 people, religious, non-religious, ethicists, doctors, rabbis, Jews, non-Jews. Um, and it's a particularly, you know, religious law in the sense that it follows halacha in many respects. Uh, and it's interesting why that hasn't created more pushback given all the religion state issues in, in Israel. Um, but I don't see this as a Israel Chutzlar's divide per se. Um, it could be that it would develop that way, but I certainly hope not. It really shouldn't be. Right? This is one of those issues where you'd say there shouldn't be that big of a difference. The one area where you might say it could become relevant, and here is an interesting of Allah still needs to be developed, is you know, healthcare costs a lot of money. It's a big budget, budgetary expense. So um, that you have to ask, you know, right? Are we, you know, spending a certain amount of money in the right ways, uh, given the priorities that we have to have in running a state? Um, and that I think is an interesting question. Pack things down the road, but but not currently. Well, are there any examples? Are there been any formal sort of uh, chuvot written by Rav Shechter, Rabbi Willig, that have been incorporated? For example, I assume there are you know serious halacha questions that are coming up. To, for example, the chief rabbinate or the Beijing Hagadol. Right. And obviously, you know, quality of life, for whatever reason, may be sort of a taboo term. Right. But as you mentioned, like there are sort of, you know, rabbinic ways to think in those terms. Question, for example, obviously, as you mentioned, the question of Isurim, whatever, Isurim, etc. So has there been any examples where sort of the methodology articulated in the rabbi, Dr. Judah Goldberg piece with the, uh, the Haskama of Rav Shechter has sort of made its way to the world of Israeli psakers? It's still sort of like very much uh, cutting edge and sort of, you know, hasn't sort of become part of the medical uh, halacha in Israel yet. Yeah, it's somewhat cutting edge, but given the stature of Rabbi Willig and Rabbi Shechter as known as postkim, it's out there now. It's getting cited. Um, it's getting cited in various, you know, sometimes just footnotes of articles. There is this position and whatnot. But you do see getting cited now in Truman, or of, uh, Ramon cited it in his recent book. And I think it's uh, we're trying to push along some of that discourse as well uh, here in Israel. You know, it's interesting when you raise the question beforehand that there's a dividing issue where there's a consensus issue in Israel, but not in Chutzlaretz. I think you have an opposite. It's a very interesting case. The prenuptial agreement, a lawful prenuptial agreement before people get married, in modern Orthodox circles in America, is totally accepted. Meaning, it's like one of those things where you just, you know, you, you don't do, you don't get married without it. And it's interesting, the religious Zionist world has not accepted the parallel types of agreements to the same extent, by any means, here in Israel. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that there's still this belief that the Bate Din, the Bate Din system of the Rabbanut, can handle the Aguna situations here in Israel. But it is an interesting test case where you could see the opposite, where something which is so consensus 
in the United States, at least in certain communities, but remains contentious in the parallel community here in Israel. I remember uh, one time, you know, in Israel, like when you grew up in the U.S., so, you know, you think a lot of times about, you know, things that are sort of halakhic given. So, for example, like uh, growing up, everyone, not everybody, but a lot of people assume that you can drink regular milk, right, based on the, uh, the heter of Rav Moshe Feinstein. And then you get to Israel, you know, you look at an average hechsher, and I'll say, you know, le'ochle, apkat, chalav, nochri, right? They won't even, you know, consider giving a hechsher, uh, a hechsher to uh, something that has actual chalav, nochri, right? But apkat, chalav, nochri, which is sort of like, you know, one removed, right, from the actual chalav itself, right? So that, that is something which they'll consider. And I remember one time when I was uh, visit, uh, there was a, a, a Rosh Hashiva from Israel visiting the U.S. And I was meeting with him about something, and we were, we were in Teaneck, and uh, I remember we were at a restaurant, and he said to me, is, is, uh, is this place Chal of Yisrael? So I said, no, I, I don't think so. So he said, I, I don't want to eat here. I'd rather eat at a place that's Chal of Yisrael. So I said, okay, no problem. So we were on that strip on Queen Anne Road. There's a million restaurants there. So you know, we went to a Fleshik place. So I said to him, uh, you know, just FYI, you know, this place is not Makpid on uh, Yashan. You know, so Yashan, you know, is obviously a much more serious halachic issue from the question of, like, the formalisms than Chal of Yisrael. But he said to me, no, you know, I'm not so machmir on Yashan. So I remember I was thinking to myself, like, you know, why are you so, when it's strange, right? Why are you so machmir on Chav Yisrael and, uh, and not on Yashan? So I remember I was talking to my friend about it, and he said, yeah, well, you know, he was speculating, but he, I thought it was like a cute anecdote. He was saying, well, you know, for the, for the Zionists, the idea that, you know, non-Jews are going to milk their cows, right? That's against the Zionist ethos. Right, and therefore, like, Chal Yisrael is sort of, you know, reflects the idea that, you know, <laughs> we as Zionist rabbis, we only drink, we use our hands, right, and we, we, we milk our own cows. So, oh, Yashan, uh, that's something separate. But in all, in all seriousness, um, getting back to the question of medical ethics and trying to think how this sort of model plays out, I remember I heard an incredible share that you gave one time um, about quality of life where you reference a debate between your father, Zechorn Levracha, who was a very serious uh, medical ethicist, and I think Rabbi uh, Lord Jacobovitz. So it was an amazing framing, sort of thinking about sort of these questions. And I'm curious if you could spend a few minutes talking about sort of your father's orientation here. Because I think, you know, I remember, again, I apologize for being so anecdotally personal here, but I do remember I, when the whole experience happened with me, and I remember I had just heard your shear. So it was like an interesting way of sort of conceptualizing something, then experiencing it, and sort of providing very powerful framing. So sort of what was your father's perspective on this topic? Yeah, I think my father, uh, Zichon Lebracha, had a um, perspective on ethics in general. I mean, he was a general philosopher also at Baylor College of Medicine and Rice University. But when he thought about halacha as well, which said that halachic debates are always going to take into account multiple values. And so these are all values of great importance. And one of the things we're going to have to try to figure out is which of the values is going to trump or win out in the given circumstance. And so one of the things you try to show is that the whole notion of saying that the sanctity of life, as defined as that every moment of life, no matter what pain or suffering or consciousness, is of infinite value or equal value, um, that statement, which in one form or another, uh, Rabbi Jacobovitz was a pioneer of Jewish medical ethics, was promoting, uh, my father just said can't be true because there are too many Gemarot and Halachot, which take into account questions of pain and suffering and other forms of variables that we call today quality of life. And I think that that's a huge factor, um, which anyone who wants to take the issue of medical ethics, particularly related to end-of-life care, has to bring into the equation, which is that there are going to be multiple factors 
and considerations as we create a general policy and also on a case-by-case -case level in terms of how we decide whether certain treatments should be given or not given or withheld or even sometimes withdrawn or, or forgo, whatever it might be. And, and that's because we know we're not a monolithic thinking. We have monolithic thinking when it comes to these issues. Um, and, and that's something which my father's one of the bracha really tried to promote, which is say that you can't just think about one value here. And, and he was equally critical of some secular ethicists who just promoted the value of autonomy. Right? So that's also you know, just a very monolithic way of thinking that people can just decide what they want to do with their body or not. Right? These are much more complex questions, and, and therefore you're going to have to bring into multiple values in the conversation. In this respect, you know, I think that Rav Wilgen of Schechter's position certainly um, is very important in this, but in many ways they're following the lead here of Rav Moshe and certainly uh, of Shlomo Zaman Orbach and Zaman Chemin Goldberg and, and others as well beforehand who understood that multiple factors have to go into this conversation. I'm sure many of the listeners uh, may or may not be aware of this, something in Israel called the Sal Habriyot, right, which is a sort of a very interesting a part of the national healthcare system in Israel where certain medicines are subsidized and other ones are not. Um, obviously, there are serious ethical questions involved there because not everybody can afford uh, medications that are not subsidized by the state. I know that Review Valsherlo, uh, who himself is very involved in issues related to medical ethics, uh, has been involved. He may actually even be a member of the committee who's involved in, in, in Salva Brio. And you mentioned, for example, your father's approach, which tried to sort of uh, balance uh, different values. Maybe you could speak for a few minutes about this institution called the Salabriot and Salabriot, and what does sort of halacha have to say here? I mean, these are situations where, you know, if you make certain treatments more monetarily sustainable for people, it really can save their lives. But by choosing one medicine, right, you're excluding another medicine. Now, obviously, if you're somebody who has financial means, well, you'll figure out a different way to get the medicine that you need. But Unfortunately, not everybody has um, the same degree of economic stability. So, you know, putting this all together and thinking about sort of state-centered halacha and sort of coming to a head with this example of the Salabriot, obviously this is not only a religious consideration, this is a secular government, but that being the case, you know, from a halachic perspective and for somebody who is working on these cases, you know, on a more macro level, sort of how would you describe what halacha has to say about those types of situations? Yeah, I mean, this is what we call economic triage. Now you have a certain budget, you have a certain amount of money, you have to ask, so where are we going to spend the money? And Rosherlo used to be a member of the committee, is no longer a member of the committee, but there is always now a religious member, a rabbinic type of member of the committee. Um, so, you know, he's raised an interesting question. I mean, you might have said, oh, we should just prioritize all life-saving treatments. Okay, but life-saving treatments are very expensive. So what that might mean is we'll save the lives of 10 people, although we don't necessarily know what quality of life they'll have, but we might be able to pay or pay for the life-saving treatment for 10 people. But as a consequence, 10,000 people won't get access to certain medicine, which might not be life-saving, but is certainly greatly going to improve the quality of their life. Halacha didn't have to think about these questions for many, many centuries. And so what tools do we have? And I don't think we're going to find clear precedents from various uh, psakim in previous generations because it wasn't didn't come up. And that's why you have to really lay out the values that you think are the halachic values that go into this consideration. My father used to call it pluralistic casuistry. 
My father's a brilliant man, but not great in marketing. And uh, I, th I think actually had, so. I think I think actually was onto something because Malcolm Gladwell actually had a whole podcast series about Jesuit casuistry. So yeah, I think your father may have been ahead of his time. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, ahead of his time. But uh, what he meant by that is just that there are plural values that are going to have to be applied on a case by case level, and uh, and that's certainly the case, and that comes up in the equation of of the salubriot, and it comes with the equation many other questions, and. By its nature, that's going to lead to disagreements over how we apply uh, those types of uh, values in different scenarios. And it's going to be hard to say in these types of new questions, the halacha necessarily has one unequivocal answer. But I nonetheless think it's valuable to think about this as halacha providing us a framework for thinking about these dilemmas. I mean, uh, I know another example I'm thinking a lot about is that I'm completing now a safer on Jewish military ethics. So once again, you have questions which are not unprecedented in many levels for many centuries. And here, too, I think we have to set up a framework of setting up what are the values which are going to drive our decision making. We might disagree about which value to prioritize in a given context. But at the very least, I think halacha can provide us with a framework of thinking about those dilemmas. But sort of just thinking about how that would play out practically, obviously, military ethics is a parallel sort of universe in the sense that we haven't had a state for a long time to all of a sudden start thinking about uh, military ethics on a state level. So uh, do you envision sort of like thinking about medical ethics and maybe to a certain degree military ethics that the world of responsive literature moving forward, thinking about questions that really are new, right, is going to look different? Or do you imagine it's sort of, you know, sort of having the same type of structure and language, albeit sort of incorporating maybe some different um, entry points that weren't necessarily, you know, so normative in the past? I remember that there's a whole debate, you know, initially in Israel about like, what do you do? I remember Professor... Um, Yishayo Leibovitz and other, you know, scholars were debating about whether or not we needed like a Shulchan Aruch HaChamishi, right? Whether Israel required something qualitatively different. Other postings said, no, we have all the tools accessible, right? With Not that, you know, Professor Leibovitz was a formal postdoc, but he was a philosopher of the law. And other postings were saying, no, we have the tools accessible, like within our orbit. It's just a question of like, you know, utilizing them in the proper way. So let's think of an example. Maybe we'll sort of end with this. You know, questions, for example, of like AI, you know, so, you know, AI, obviously, I'm sure it's cutting edge, both in terms of technology and obviously implications for medical ethics. Right. So I, I was listening. I went to a shear not that long ago by our, our friend, uh, Rabbi uh, Dr. Aaron Siegel, where he was trying to talk about AI using Chuvot. Right. That we're talking about the creation of golems, right, both in the Talmud and also in the early modern period. And that raises interesting questions, right, about to what extent, like, is the halachic model that you're talking about, right, is it going to have a new language, right, will it start reviving categories that, you know, aren't necessarily so, you know, applicable all the time, or is it something that basically we have in place already, it's just a question of lining up all of our dots and making sure that all the formalities are in place. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, there's, you can take precedence from the golem, or you can take precedence from various stories Midrashim that might apply to say fertility treatments and new types of questions. And, and sometimes those work, sometimes they don't. And you feel like the precedences that are being cited are pretty weak. Uh, and to the point where they're so weak, it's sort of like you're you're making this irrelevant. And I, I think that each case we're gonna have to figure out on a different level. I mean, at some circumstances, we can find interesting precedents. And some of the end-of-life care decision making, there are some interesting precedents because end-of-life care issues came up. It's just not easy to figure out how to apply those precedents to new technology. 
in other cases like AI or in, in other types of halachic questions, I think that the level of precedent that we have is going to be very weak, in which case we're going to have to invoke different types of values. And I think that post in general are hesitant to reflect some form of deep change between how halacha was being practiced in the past and how it's being practiced today. And so there's always going to be a preference to shape things in a way in which you're just applying old principles to new environments and new questions. And many times that's true and it works out. Uh, but I do think that there are times that we're going to have to also think it through and say, these are just questions we don't have really clear precedents for it. Uh, Rav Shavais, you see that in some of his chuvot and others as well, who basically say like, I just don't have a clear makor to discuss this issue. We have to think about it in other ways. I remember that uh, maybe just one last uh, question just came to my head. I remember that I was reading a chuvot from Rav Nachum Rabinovich, uh, about the question of brain death. And um, I, I hear sometimes sort of criticisms of the model of brainstem death under the guise that, well, you know, science evolves, right? And science changes, right? And in a certain sense, like, how can we accept sort of one criteria if in 20 years the criteria will change? If I remember correctly, Rav Nachum Rabinovich says that, you know, all we have, our, our responsibility is exclusively in a certain sense to the moment. In other words, the science of the day is the science that we have, right? And we have to be working uh, with that. Maybe you could just comment for a few minutes about that concern, right? In other words, if we believe that halachic values are eternal, and we also do believe that, you know, science is rooted in ultimate truth. That being said, there are some, you know, things that do shift over time in terms of the application, right? So, you know, if people are concerned that, well, wait a second, you know, uh, science is constantly in flux here, right? So how can that play a, a central role when dealing with questions of value? So, so how would you, you know, think about the evolution of the scientific world while sort of so simultaneously acknowledging the centrality it plays in halachic discourse? Yeah, I mean, Rabinovich's point is a fascinating one. I think ultimately he's right in the sense that um, we need to um, work with what knowledge that we have today, right? And certain questions that are very much based on empirical uh, reality needs to be addressed based on our empirical knowledge as it is today. Question of brain death relates to is this person irreversibly right, loss functioning, critical functioning. And given the medical knowledge that we have today, technology we have today, it's a very reasonable declaration to be made. It could be, of course, at some point, what we now consider to be brain death because we think it's irreversible, we'll develop technology that will make it reversible, right? And so if that technology develops somehow, it'd be very surprising, but if somehow it develops, you never should be surprised the way technology can always develop, then the reality in that given era will be different. So we'll have to rethink those questions. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's a, it's a very difficult um, question to think about because the implications are wild. I mean, would you want to say that halacha doesn't respond to new medical knowledge at all? I mean, you know, think about DNA research and what the implications of DNA are. Um, you know, if you want to identify a body, so that way we can be matir, like free in aguna, so we can declare someone death. We do not rely upon DNA evidence as we did in the World Trade Center because it wasn't known beforehand. No, that's based on what we know today. Maybe some point later on, DNA will be questioned in one form or another. But in the meantime, uh, that's the knowledge that we have today. And so, you know, I think when it comes to empirical questions, we should rely upon science, which is deeply rooted in, in, in the consensus. Obviously, when things are more contentious or more debated, even in the scientific world, 
postgame are going to be much more hesitant because we're not really sure, right, given the, the, the phenomenon. Can you, um, can you recommend a book or an article? Let's say somebody's interested in getting a sense of, let's say, some basic issues in Jewish medical ethics. Obviously, the Amatai website, I assume, is a great resource. Um, can you think of, let's say, an article, a book, it could be a, even a secular book, it sort of you know, frame the conversation in a way that would get like, the curious and sophisticated listener, uh, would provide him or her more data, uh, thinking more carefully about this topic? Uh, yeah, I mean, Amatai website definitely has a lot of articles and uh, videos that we've written that make it sort of short and compact, but make things accessible. I try to write about a lot of these issues. Also, my book, A Guide to the Complex. I think that the two books I'd probably recommend are uh, Professor Abram Steinberg's Encyclopedia of Jewish Medical Ethics, which give you a real, sort of, as an encyclopedia, give you a broad feel of the different positions out there. And uh, our friend uh, and the rabbinic consultant, senior consultant for Amatai, Robert Jason Weiner, uh, his books, uh, particularly on decision making, uh, Jewish decision making, I think are, are, is a very important book and very accessible for the, for the lay reader as well. Okay, Rabbi Brody, thank you so much for coming on the Tzarek Iman podcast. For anybody who's interested in learning more, just say one quickly, what is the Amatai website? Amatai.org, E-M-A-T-A-I.org. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, and uh, definitely look forward to continuing the conversation, and Shakoch uh, Gadol and all the incredible work. Thank you so much, David. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, the podcast of Yeshivat Oraita. <laughs>